Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and our special guest Dave. Three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Today's Rocktail Hour is brought to you by utelconcerts.com, which is dedicated to spreading the love of live music. Check out utelconcerts.com, where you can read and submit concert reviews, enter contests for free tickets, view concert photos, and see an extensive calendar of upcoming shows in the L.A. area. utelconcerts.com, because when you tell concerts, it's cooler. In today's Rocktail Hour, Dave is going to tell us the story behind Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Thanks, Treg. It's good to be here, and it's good to talk about who I think is one of, I'd call him, one of the founding fathers of modern rock and roll, and that's Chuck Berry. And so before we get into Johnny Be Good, I wanted to delve into a little bit of the context uh, of the kind of the societal context and the musical context in which Chuck Berry grew up and when he came onto the scene, because it's very relevant given his contributions to rock music. So he came onto the, the music scene in the early 1950s, and he had a connection with Muddy Waters, famous blues player, who plugged him in with a, uh, a record company, and they immediately saw the talent, and he played a song for them called Ida May. And they thought the song was great, but they didn't want the name Ida May, and so they took a popular name from a makeup commercial called Maybelline. And that became the song <laughs> awesome. later, Maybelline. Uh, wow. And they changed it, and that became one of his first hits. But anyway... You know, from a societal perspective, in the early 50s, especially in the South, where he was born and where he came from, it was very highly segregated. And you had the blues at the time, which had existed obviously for decades, dating back to the Robert Johnson era in the early 1900s. And you had a lot of phenomenal blues artists. But up until that time, the black blues artists were primarily and in some ways exclusively playing for black audiences. And Chuck Berry was one of the first black artists, if not the first black artist, that kind of crossed that color barrier. And he actually targeted a white audience from a very early age. Cool. Um, and so what he, he did this by taking a lot of the popular country music that was, you know, then really popular with the white people and incorporating his blues roots into that. And so he was a little bit of a hybrid fusion, so to speak, of country and blues. And what ended up happening is he would be playing in the traditional black clubs and slowly the white people, because it had that country feel to it, would say, hey, let's take notice of this guy. Check it out. And he had upwards of 40 to sometimes 50 percent of his audience, which was white, in a black club, which at that time contextually wow. was completely unheard of. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so, you know, he was a really groundbreaking artist in that regard. Um when he got his first hit that we talked about, Maybelline, most of the major disc jockeys thought he was a white singer. And so they were playing it. And just to show you how kind of screwed up and segregated it was back then with our own norms today that we believe, uh, a lot of the DJs, when they found out he was a black artist, yanked it from their playlists. No way. Wow. Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, so he was one of the first artists that said, hey, I can play to my black audience. But what I'm going to aim for is white teenage America. And you'll see laced through his lyrics things like, you know, singing about cars, young love, airplanes flying over the sky, things like that. I mean, it wasn't something that was 
typically sung about in blues. Right, right. right? And so he was, you know, I, I kind of call him the Jackie Robinson of rock and roll. And in the sense that he broke that color barrier. And you can right. go on YouTube or wherever you want and see old videos of him playing to these huge sold-out auditoriums of white kids that are going bananas for his yeah. music. And if you understand that contextually, what that meant at the time, it was it was a huge deal. I didn't know that. That's fantastic. It's a great yeah. story. So just as kind of just as important as his ability to you know have that crossover broad appeal is his groundbreaking musical innovations, and that's what I want to talk about too for a, a, a second. Um, you know, Elvis may be thought of generally as the king of rock and roll, but Chuck Berry is widely considered as the father of rock and roll. In fact, there's a great story from Chuck Berry's son, who's named Charles. He probably didn't want to go by Chuck for his whole entire life. And he remembers the time when he was in first grade and everybody was getting up and sharing with the class what their father did for a living. And he had friends that were getting up and saying, my dad's a policeman. Oh, isn't that so cool? And my dad's a <laughs> fireman or my dad's a lawyer. And the kids would boo him. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but they were all the kids were talking about their dad's profession. And he gets up in front of his class and he says, my dad's a king of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed he was. Awesome. Um, so, you know, there's That's no. That's what I want my kids to say about me, but it's not it's happening. Never gonna happen. No. Yeah. Not in this lifetime or no, the next. I don't think so. <laughs> You're the king of the of this podcast, there and that's you go. about it, Trig. I'm the king of Rocktail Hour. Well, that's I'm right. the prince. I'd say Tim is the king. <laughs> yeah, I'm the king. <laughs> so there's an old saying in music that says the the blues had a baby and they named it rock and roll. Uh, you know, Chuck was certainly in the delivery room when that baby was had, if not being the mother or the father himself, as as we kind of mentioned. One great quote from John Lennon is he said this. If you tried to give rock and roll another name, you might call it Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah. He was truly Perfect. a founding pillar of rock music. And I think today, you know, there's a concept called presentism where we tend to view things in the past through our own, you know, somewhat distorted goggles with our current cultural norms. I think if a music aficionado were to listen to some of Chuck Berry's music today, they would say, oh, that's kind of fun. It's got a good beat. But you really wouldn't grasp how groundbreaking it was for its time. And so let's talk about that just kind of really quick. First of all, you know, I'm a guitar player. And before Chuck Berry and certainly after Chuck Berry, there were plenty of great blues guitar players. But in my opinion, Chuck was one of the first, if not the first, rock and roll guitar god. So if you look at some of his early performances, here's a guy who had amazing charisma on stage. You look at his facial expressions, um, the way he did, I mean, he patented little dance moves. Everybody yeah, right, knows right. The, the classic the Chuck Berry yeah. duck walk, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, his, uh, you know, one music commentator said, if, you know, Chuck would immediately get everybody off of their feet, and then it took him one duck walk across the stage, and he had you for the entire night, <laughs> right? And he was just one of those guys. But more specifically, in terms of music and his musicality, he was doing things on guitar at the time that no one had done in terms of being a rock soloist. And he's a great singer-songwriter, clearly, but he was also groundbreaking in his lead guitar capabilities and really that signature sound that we all talk about with Chuck Berry. Um, and in fact, you know, that, that first riff on Johnny Be Good, which we're going to talk about here in a second, 
is known to almost anyone remotely familiar with rock and roll. Yeah. That riff, it starts off a lot of his songs. And since then, I think even today, you could turn on the radio and say, oh, Chuck Berry. Right. right. Rip off. Right. (laughs) People are taking that riff. And what he did using this kind of double string playing style that he did on those riffs was, uh, you know, kind of singularly his at the time that he was doing it. And it's that first riff that kind of goes like this. I have a little guitar. It goes... That kind of double-stringed soloing that he did was really signature to, to his style. And Keith Richards said, you know, I kind of, it took me a while to get it, but I think I've got it, but I'm not doing it as well as Chuck Berry even today. Yeah, yeah. Rhythmically, he was a master. Uh, and certainly from a, uh, a lead guitar and a charisma and stage presence persona, he was groundbreaking. Yeah. Well, you know the story behind that, don't you? How he developed that style? No. There was this kid in 1985 that went back in time in a DeLorean. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Chuck, this is is Marion Barry, your brother. I think I got that sound you've been looking for. (laughs) Listen! (laughs) Well, that's how Eddie Van Halen got his sound, too. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I thought I was going to get embarrassed there for a second. Yeah, Eddie Van Halen took a different trip. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now let's move into Johnny Be Good, the song itself. The song was written by Chuck in 1955, released in 1958, and clearly was one of the songs that launched him into stardom. Uh, it's about a poor country boy from the South that can play a mean guitar like ringing a bell. I always wondered what that meant. My guess is it's real easy to ring a bell, <laughs> and this guy was so good at playing the guitar, it's just like yeah, ringing yeah, a bell makes for him. Sense, yeah. Right. Um, and he's in, and at the end of the song, it talks about how he's destined to have his name in lights. One interesting thing, and again, this harkens back to the segregated nature of society at that point in time. Um, there's a lyric in the first verse that says this. There stood a log cabin made of earth and wood where lived a country boy named Johnny Be Good. And the way he wrote it originally was where lived a colored boy named Johnny Be Good. Uh-huh. And he ended up taking that lyric out. And putting in Country Boy, partly, I think, to harken back to some of his country roots as a musician, but also he wanted this thing to have radio Inclusive, play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, again, it kind of highlights how he was targeting that more broad, white audience. And the song is, you know, clearly autobiographical with Chuck Berry. In fact, if you look at the spelling of the song, it's Johnny B. Good, and Good is spelled G-O-O-D-E. And that is the exact same spelling as the street on which he grew up. He grew up on a street called Good Avenue. Ah. So it's clearly autobiographical about a young up-and-coming kid that's obviously blessed with incredible gifts and talents on the guitar and becomes a huge star. And that was somewhat of Chuck's life. You know, I think this song is widely considered to be probably one of the most recognizable songs in music history. (laughs) It might sound like an exaggeration. But I think if you go and play that song, maybe they don't say, oh, that was Chuck Berry, 1958. But people can sing along to Johnny Be Good. Oh, yeah, Yeah, definitely. No, I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. In fact, I was going to, I don't know if I want to admit this while we're doing a rock tale hour, but I went to see John Denver in about 1991. And for the encore of the concert, he played Johnny Be Good. And, you know, John Denver is a talented guy for his kind of music. And I grew up listening to John Denver, and, and I like all kinds of music. And I and I 
I appreciate John Denver. I'm a fan. Yeah. I always have been. But he wailed as he was playing this song. He played all the gu- he played the guitar as if he were Chuck Berry. Wow. And that and the audience had enjoyed that concert. And that, and and there were there were kids that were five year old, and, and there were elderly people that were in their eighties and nineties. And every person on that mountain that night stood up and danced for ten minutes while you know John Denver sang this song and and played those guitar parts and. It is an iconic rock and roll song, one of the greatest songs of all time, and you cannot discount. This is an interesting story about not only a really, really creative um, musician, but a guy that knew how to brand himself. You know, yeah. I, I didn't realize that until I'd heard this story. It's all about branding yourself and get pe- getting people to buy into you as the artist and not just your music and, and way to be smart about being able to get um, a segment of society that would generally shun you into into making you a rock and roll icon. And I got to address the elephant in the room here. If Chuck Berry is the king of rock and roll, what does that make Little Richard? <laughs> the princess. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> We're going to have to do one on, on Little Richard. I like Little Richard. Absolutely. Yeah, how You cannot not like Little Richard. And I did not mean that in any way derogatory. And I think he would think a joke like that is funny. In fact, he's probably said it himself. But <laughs> Little Richard is great. I, I, there were some great, great artists from that time period. And they inspired some other great artists. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Foundational. And you know, Tim, that's really insightful. I think it going back to how Chuck was able to pierce the the color veil, so to speak, or he was able to you know have that crossover appeal. To me, it's larger than Chuck Berry. To me, it's about the power of music. You could have people who certainly by today's standards had a racist society, and they are piling into the same building to stand shoulder to shoulder with one another because the music was speaking to Mm -hmm. all of them on a level that had nothing to do with race, had nothing to do with class levels, had nothing to do with economics or income. It had to do with reaching us on a much more instinctual level as human beings and we all share the same biology. And music somehow, and it's hard to articulate in the world, music is somehow able to do that for all of us. It bridges and that gap. It oh, bridges I, a ton of gaps. I would absolutely agree with that. Just a couple more notes on the song, and then we'll wrap it up. Um, a couple of very interesting statistics about this. Again, um, you know, I, I think it's one of the most recognizable songs in history, and these stats might back that up. It was uh, number seven on Rolling Stone's Top 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. It was number one. Right behind Good Vibrations, we learned. Yes, that's right. I I heard that podcast. Yep. It was number one on Rolling Stone's top greatest guitar songs of all time. That's, I would agree with that. And I know what number two is because that's my next podcast. Oh, yes. So we'll get to that. Yes. Well, here's the thing. If you do nothing in your life other than write a song that becomes number one on the top greatest guitar songs of all time, (laughs) you'll die happy. Yeah. That's an accomplishment. He has left an indelible legacy on the music world. Uh, He was number six on Acclaimed Music's Top 3,000 Greatest Songs. Wow. Uh, Sorry, uh, Johnny B. Good was number six. And here's a very interesting one if you didn't know this. In 1977, NASA and the U.S. government launched the Voyager 1. I don't know if it was a a rocket or some kind of a a space probe. And it was shot out into space indefinitely. They say that it's going to reach its first star in 44,000 years. And the idea was, let's take this 
space rocket Voyager. Let's take Voyager one and embellish it with all things that tell about Earth's culture and shoot it out into space and see if anything ever happens. Yeah, all the best things about Earth. There yeah, it that's is. right. And so, of course, who that's was the, included? That's the whole plot line of the original Star Trek movie, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe do a podcast on that one. Yeah. <laughs> what was included was songs by Mozart, Beethoven, Stravinsky, several other cultural icons, and, of course, Johnny, Johnny Be, Good Be Good by Chuck, Chuck Berry. Berry. Fantastic. Yeah, so talk great. about, I mean, he's literally out of this world. <laughs> that recording is meant to last for one billion years. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, wow. That's what, I, that's what I've heard. How, how fascinating. And, yeah. and maybe it will need to. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no one will ever know, though. That's the, that's the problem. It could have died already and no one will ever know. Yeah. Talk yeah. about perspective. Did you, didn't you say there was a list there of the top 3,000 songs? Yes. I bet it'd be pretty cool to be number six, but how would you like to be number 2,800? Oh, there's, <laughs> there's an award. <laughs> Do you rent a tux to go pick that up? <laughs> Actually, I think it's a song by Quiet Riot. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I think I heard that Chuck Berry's first million-selling songs was Dingling. Was it really? That's what I heard. I did not know that. Dingling, yeah. I believe, was later in his career. Yeah. I yeah. think it was well into the 60s or maybe the 70s. I can't recall. But I think that was his It first... wasn't during his heyday. Yeah. I think that was his first million million selling song. And he would get the whole audience to sing along with it, right? You know, my dingling. Is that, yeah. is that possible that that could be? I, wouldn't Johnny Be Good be a million selling song long before that? I don't think so. Fact check him, Tim. Oh. <laughs> I'm not I'm not googling anything about my dingling just so you know. <laughs> not gonna happen. <laughs> you probably get arrested. Mm-hmm. So the last note on this is, and we alluded to this earlier, is how many times this song in particular has been covered. Oh, it's ridiculous. Probably hundreds. And by so many bands. You mentioned John Denver covering it um zeppelin covered it the beatles covered it fish covered it bon jovi covered it um there's some even more obscure ones there's there's just an endless list surely dolly parton has covered it (laughs) she's covered everything (laughs) so that's johnny be good by chuck berry certainly one of the most iconic songs in rock history and foundational to everything we listen to today that's fantastic that's awesome got to it's a great podcast. See, now, if we were doing these podcasts in order of relevance, that would be episode number one. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thanks. Dave would never have chosen White Snake. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, <laughs> as, as, an inter- and as, as an interested listener and now as a participant, I just need to go on record as saying... White Snake, yes. guys. Yes, I, I, they were my first concert. Not, I saw them with Motley Crue. Not guys. guys. Go back. They were my first concert. They opened for Motley Crue, the Girls, Girls, wow. Girls tour cool. in the eighties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I get White Snake, but to start off a rock and roll podcast, hey, I'm not feeling it. It was it was just the story that inspired me. That's hey, all. There That's you go. All. Tony Katane. You and you and Connie, Tony Katane. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks, Dave, for bringing us the story behind Johnny Be Good by Chuck Berry. Please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong, if you have an interesting Rocktail Hour of your own, or if you have a recommendation of a song that would be a good subject for Rocktail Hour. If you think we're lame, please keep that to yourself. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, 
And if you rate us on iTunes, which is very important to us, Tim will give you a foot massage. <laughs> Can't believe I fell for that. <laughs> By the way, have you guys seen the YouTube where they did that same prank to Charles Barkley on TNT Live for NBA? No, that's great. He's doing an outtake and he's reading from the prompter on it. And he's, it's something like, you know, thank you for watching NBA Live. And this is, you know, we're, um, you know. You can you put us on your Verizon Fab Five or something. My name is Charles Barkley, and I'm a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it said on the teleprompter. <laughs> you did great. it on live TV. It was great. You can go look at the YouTube of it. It's funny. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and we would really appreciate it if you would rate us on iTunes. That's very important to us. Uh, until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. <laughs> <laughs>